Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're the radio show that talks about women's issues, the things that are happening in the world, the things that are happening between people. And uh, we talk a lot about uh, domestic violence and we talk about uh, assault on women. And uh, we also talk about some fun stuff. Today we are really fortunate that we have Phyllis Frank with us. Phyllis is an associate executive director of the VCS of Rockland County, New York. She's uh, director of the social justice programs, and Phyllis's particular expertise for us today is that she works uh, to change the practice of court-mandated offender accountability. Now, in domestic violence, we talk a lot about the offenders, but we need to talk about the perpetrators and the offenders a lot more, I think, when we talk about violence and violence in the home. And uh, before people get all upset about me, uh, we are talking about mostly male perpetrators today because mostly male perpetrators are the ones that are, you know, doing doing the deeds. Doesn't mean that females don't, but it just means that the majority of perpetrators of these kinds of crimes are uh, men. And some of the perpetrators uh, do not actually rise to the level of crime, but still. Um, it's problematic and it's hurtful and it causes lots and lots of of uh, pain in this world. So, Phyllis, thank you for being with us. We are going to be talking about the men who abuse, either sexually or physically or emotionally, and why they do it. I mean, that's kind of like a, a generic question, you know, why, 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 why? But uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about who they are, what their characteristics are, how they got that way, and what can we do about it. Phyllis, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Heather. Phyllis has been with us before to talk about similar issues, and uh, I'm kind of eager to find out what she has to do has to say today about our issues. Um, if you would like to join our conversation, please do. It is six four six three seven eight. 0430 that's 6463780430 and Phyllis who are these guys who perpetrate these kinds of crimes against women and children well let's go back a little bit heather to what you said what we're talking about is bigger than the crime of domestic violence the battered women's movement has come to define domestic violence, rather a heavy-handed word, because it a phrase because it uses the word violence, really to mean a whole range of ways that men use the power that they have as men to control the lives of women, and we're specifically talking about women who are their intimate partners. So whether or not it's the crime of domestic violence, meaning a misdemeanor or a felony assault or harassment or stalking or choking, all of those crimes, uh, when you look at the the very famous um, wheel, power and control wheel, which was really designed by women to express the ways that they feel controlled and experience being abused by male partners. It includes, um, it includes threats, it includes emotional abuse, it includes verbal abuse, it includes isolating one from friends and family members. So it, it includes humiliating comments. It includes being nasty and a whole range of ways that women experience men's behavior that controls us. So then when we have this expansive definition and we say who does it, well, in general, men do it to women, not a particular kind of man, very often otherwise very good men, often unconsciously interacting in ways with, in ways to women who are their partners that are disrespectful, mean-spirited, nasty, all the way to criminal assaults. Mm-hmm. Now, when um, we're talking about the difference between um, criminal and, um, I guess, moral abuse, um, 
the, it depends on the state, depends on the county, but um, men, uh, uh, women who get protection orders, for example, usually are able to get protection orders if there has been physical violence or a threat of physical violence. Right, now, or stalking. Some of those yeah, are stalking. That are illegal, um, yes. Yeah, but you're not able usually to get a protection order for uh, manipulation, for uh, emotional abuse, for financial abuse or spiritual abuse. Uh, Many women have said, Heather, and this this can be attested to by uh, advocates from across the country, thousands and hundreds of thousands of women have said that it's the daily indignities that hurts even more at times than the physical assaults. It's the ongoing incessant nature of disrespect that is soul-killing. We hear this across the country, actually further, further than our own borders. So no, the vast majority of how the movement defines domestic violence is not illegal, which leads one to know that the criminal justice system, even working perfectly, would not be enough. Fixing it would not be enough to end men's violence, abuse, inappropriate behavior towards intimate female partners. Yeah. Well, does that mean that uh, these things that are not criminal have less impact on women? It- not. That's the whole point. It does not. They do not have less impact. I mean, certainly the obvious is clear. You know, uh, uh, putting money that you're giving me for the week on the floor so I have to bend down and pick it up, or not allowing me to wear uh, the clothing that I chose to wear, or to go to the church I wish to go to doesn't seem as significant to an outside hearer as beating someone up or, you know, using a a hammer and all of these things as horrible as they are have been done. And in one way it's not as horrible, but in another way it is. And I think women, battered women in particular and their advocates, have asked us to look at the big picture and not make it okay if it's not as bad as the person next to you. Yeah, um, None of I, I I think the uh, study. I wish I'd pulled it. Um, there was a study a few years ago that uh, went to uh, or, or surveyed women who have experienced both physical and emotional abuse. And as I recall, overwhelmingly, the women said that if they had to be abused again in some way, they would pick the physical over the psychological abuse. That's you're making. Thank you for that. You're making the point that that I said is just ubiquitous. Women do say that, which means that the movement has taken very seriously that although when a man's abuse of a woman rises to the level of criminality, we want the criminal justice system to act swiftly, effectively, and appropriately. A point on that that I sometimes make is I ask audiences to imagine how a court or a criminal justice system responds when there is an assault on a police officer. And then I ask the same audience to consider what it would be like if every crime against an intimate woman partner was treated with the same seriousness. Need I say more? No, no, not on that issue, I don't think. Please give us a call if you'd like to join our conversation, 646-378-0430. I know some of these issues are kind of a hot button uh, for a lot of people, and we'd love to hear your input. It's 646-378-0430. Now, Heather, I didn't answer your question because I said I wanted to go back and define the problem. You said, who does this? Yep. Uh, My experience in running what has been called a batterer program since 1978, as you know, um, has really taught me that the men who are in the program really simply represent a segment of the population, often the segment that might most often be involved in the criminal justice system. Um, And the men in the program could be brothers and friends and uncles and sons of people who are my colleagues, very often who are working in these same programs. 
what we have come to believe is that there is no particular attribute that men have who are abusive, although clearly men who engage in a whole range of criminal behavior uh, might show up more often. But the Batterer Program movement was really, really created to deal with men whose only criminality was the crime against their intimate woman partner. So my answer is, who does this? You never know. And in the United States, it was the head of the Securities Exchange Commission. 35 years ago in Rockland County, it was a man I very carefully chose as my own pediatrician because he was so respectful to me, however, not to his intimate partner. So it could be just about anyone. And by the um, way... One of my my things that I always think of is when people say, whoa, yeah, there's something, you know, I've heard this about sexual abuse, I've heard this about domestic violence, when people are talking about good old Joe who was just charged with such and such, um, they all go, oh, oh, no, not Joe, he's such a good guy, he'd never hurt anybody, he's just an average, normal person, you know, da, da, da. and I always say, well, yeah, he, he can be very nice and charming if you're not the one he's hurting. Exactly. If if you don't happen to be his partner and you've actually, uh, I keep threatening to write a book called, But He's Such a Nice Guy. Ah, yeah. And the reality is, he may be. My book is going to be, Sticks and Stones May Break My Bones, But Words Will Hurt Forever. Uh Uh-huh. That's a good one. Yeah. So we got our work cut out with us. But uh, so, you know, this whole idea that good old Joe can't be uh, uh, an abuser or a sex offender because he's always been just so nice and wonderful. Um, He may even be the coach of the Little League or the, you know, the junior hockey team or a a very involved man in his community. Uh, There was a man who was ordered to our batterer program years ago who was the chief of police in a neighboring town. So, again, I I, I just, uh, whoever may be listening, uh, don't think that you can tell who may or may not be abusing their intimate partner by how they look, by what segment of the community they come from, by how much education they have. Uh, Men's abuse against women exists across every community. Um, there's an article in The Nation magazine, you're familiar with it, I'm sure, um, and it says what we talk about when we talk about rape. And the author, uh, Jessica Valenti, uh, makes a point of of just what we're talking about. She said that when um, there's a report about, you know, rape uh, or, uh, you know, uh, an assault on women, it's usually reported as, well, you know, they usually go find the obligatory neighbor who says, oh, not Joe. You know, Joe was wonderful. He was a great father. He was this, he was that. Um, And people don't seem to make the connection that just because he's a good neighbor doesn't mean he's a good partner. Exactly. I remember a hundred years ago being on, I think it was the Maury Povich show, uh, right around the time uh, that Nicole Brown Simpson had been murdered, and I was on a panel with about ten really, really wonderful friends, really good friends of O.J. Simpson, and each one told really a heart-rending and very touching story about what an incredible friend he had been to. He was not; he had been. He was to them. And when Maury Povich got to me, he said something like. Well, Ms. Domestic Violence Expert, what do you have to say about that? And I said, I'm touched, and I totally believe and I'm taken with each story of kindness. He, but he, you know, he, he's not getting all of this attention because of what he has done that has been wonderful. The attention is because of a 911 call that literally our entire nation heard. And he was not such a nice guy to Nicole Brown Simpson. Right, right. Um, Another article that I ran across, Phyllis, 
is from a psychological uh, website called Psych Central. Kind of an interesting article from my standpoint. And uh, it's titled, Using Emotional Intelligence to Manipulate Others. And when I read this article, you know, uh, we often talk about people with different intelligences, you know, that not every um, uh, strong uh, mental capability that people have has to do with uh, scoring high on your math quiz. Uh, different types of ways that people are, are skilled, and one of them is in emotional intelligence. And um, this article focused on using emotional intelligence to manipulate others. One of the misconceptions that I often hear people talk about is they think perpetrators are poor and stupid and uneducated. Yeah, that's a, that's a stereotype, and obviously it is anything but the truth. There Absolutely. No preponderance of men's violence in the community of people who might be considered economically disadvantaged. Not uh-huh. at all. There's not a shred of evidence to show that. And that um, intelligence, meaning IQ, uh, there is no evidence that people with higher or lower IQs have a greater preponderance of men's violence against women. So these are all stereotypes, and it's quite understandable as a culture, as a society, we do not want to believe or acknowledge that men's abuse of women is deeply rooted in the history, in the laws, in the cultures that abound in our country and across the globe. Yeah, that that whole... And I, you know, I hesitate to use the phrase, but patriarchy and entitlement have a lot to do with that. And right now about, you know, uh, a certain segment of our listeners is going, oh, no, not the patriarchy thing again. Um, but why would, know, why would it be? I mean, I think that is such an intelligent response or a, certainly a way to understand what is. The reality is is that in many ways, because of patriarchy, because of the foundation of this country, which I deeply believe was well-intended and was the best that we could think of at the time, the ideals of the formation of the United States of America are quite beautiful, but it is up to us to figure out in the 2000s how to live up to those very same ideals. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, when we look at, you know, our history, I mean, thousands and thousands of years of history show that women were not given equality with men, that the thinking uh, was different. Uh, Women were categorized more as possessions. And uh, as somebody once said to me, if, uh, and then the laws were structured so that the owner would get recompense if there was something done. So uh, one of my professors in college said, okay, look at it this way. You own that desk. If I come and knock a leg off that desk, I'm not going to give money to the desk. I have to give compensation to you because you own the desk. It's yours. And that, unfortunately, is the way we started laws protecting women. We uh, offered the owner of those women the compensation if somebody did something wrong, if there was a rape or if there was, you know, uh, anything wrong, the compensation went to the owner who was the, the spouse, the father, the the brother, the, the male. So there is a history, uh, a very strong history of patriarchy when it comes to um, laws about for and to protect women. That's, that, that is exactly what I meant, Heather, when I said rooted deeply in the history, laws, and culture of this country, uh, all of you know, the structures, the foundation of the problem as it exists today, and people who try to silence you or anyone else by saying, oh, there she goes, or she's talking about, pa-. well, how can you not talk about patriarchy? How can you not talk about, for instance, white supremacy when you're talking about racism in this country? It is embedded in the history and the laws and the culture of our country, and if we want to change it, we have to figure out what's broken and what needs to be done in order to fix fix it. Well, 
some of the, the, the fallback on a discussion like this, um, by the way, I would like to say that that history of patriarchy is worldwide. It's not just our country. It's, it's, it's pretty much 100%. all around the world. I agree um, with 100%. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes we end up talking about home, but, you know, it, it's all over as well. Um, sometimes the reaction, and I would venture to say, you know, a lot of the time, the reaction to conversations and words like you and I have just been using is um, a, a kind of a flashback, kind of a, uh, a pushback by men's groups. And there's a huge upsurge of what's called the men's rights movement in this country. And um, I'm all for men's rights, but when I look at the websites and I look hear the, the rhetoric, they're not talking about men's rights. They're talking about men's, um, gosh, what's the word I want to use? They're, they're, ta- they're talking about um, men's dominance. Yes, more than that men's is... Rights. That's actually, I mean, very much the case, and I've I've been affiliated with a group that I believe you're familiar with, which is the National Organization for Men Against Sexism. NOMAS is the uh, way we is the way we call it. Um, that is comprised mostly of men, but men and women who share the belief that um, society has been based on oppressiveness by dominating groups against marginalized groups as written into our early documents here in this country and around the globe. And it's men and women who are forward thinking who want to redress it. It's not women against men. It's men and women together who share a deep belief that until we are all free, no one is really free. Yeah. Um, I get disturbed sometimes when I go to some of these uh, men's rights movement um, websites. Um, I find a lot of them, well, I'm looking at one right now on my computer, and it is uh, uh, an American flag, uh, you know, decked out on this truck, and uh, it's for the ncfmla.org, National Coalition of Free Men in L- uh, L.A., Los Angeles, and a big, huge broadside, a big, huge uh, sign on the back of the truck, domestic abuse law is feminist lies. Um, I, I see articles all the time about men being falsely accused of domestic violence. I read articles about how my ex-wife took me to the cleaners and criminalized me and took away my children and just beat me to a pulp, and she was actually the abuser, not me. I was the poor abused person. Um, is is there any truth to any of this stuff? You know, you said early on um, that women sometimes do this, whatever the this is, to men. And here is my, my response to it, which I think will also answer your question. Um, we, in the movement that I'm a part of, reserve the language of domestic violence to include only what's done by the dominating group against members of the marginalized group, what's done by men against women. And I will talk about lesbian and gay domestic violence and trans domestic violence under separate cover. But understanding the, um, the entitlements built into our culture, well-intended but with very bad outcomes for women and for men, When you think of those entitlements, whatever a man does to a woman is kind of supported by history, law, and culture. Women can do great harm. Women can kill, harm a man. There's no doubt about it. Women have. What we never do is use the same language, and we deeply understand that the... uh, that what men do to women and why they do it is always different from what women are doing to men. Men abuse women and in a whole range of ways in order to control them, to get them to do something or not to do something or to be a particular way. When women use physical violence 
against a man who is an intimate partner, it's typically to protect herself, to get back, to get away. Very, very different. Still a crime because our criminal justice system is incident-driven, and there are many who are pushing so that the entire bigger picture can be taken into consideration. Um, but it is not the same thing. And I, I never say sometimes men do it to women and sometimes women do it to men. I say frequently men do this to women. And when women use physical assaults against men, it is a very different looking incident. That doesn't well, mean she... the impact, the impact of, of a woman hitting a man is different from the impact of a man hitting a woman. Yeah, um, there's, there's no doubt about that, Heather, but let's talk about, you know, killing someone. A man can murder a woman, a woman can murder a man. It's not good in either way, in either case. No. Uh, yeah. uh, the key is that we are dealing with very different crimes, and in the state of New York... Uh, I, in the 1980s, visited Bedford Hills Prison and women who were incarcerated, that's a maximum security women's prison, the women who were incarcerated, a speak out had been organized for them. And when they, and each one had committed manslaughter against an intimate male partner, they had not been allowed in court to talk about prior incidents. And it, none, of, none of their past experience of horrific abuse at the hands of these same partners and their inability to get any kind of help or support had been taken into consideration. And I'm not justifying murder, but I am justifying self-defense. And in no case, no way. Frequently, the self-defense... Um, uh, for women who are incarcerated, I've had a, a couple of women who've spent jail time for murdering their abusers, and it seems like it's perceived differently or, or carried out differently. Um, yeah. Oftentimes, women will, you know, just kind of hunker down at the moment and right. then go back later, you know, uh, the burning bed type of thing scenario. That's when Exactly. When they can go back to retaliate, they will and That's to protect right. themselves to retaliate, to protect themselves, to get back, to escape. It, it, it's, it's endless, the, the numbers of experiences that we're leaning on to tell these stories. In no instance, I never want to support abuse and violence, and I want to create a culture where no woman would ever need to resort to that because she couldn't get away or get back or escape in any other way. We want a very different kind of culture where it will be unthinkable for men to be abusive to women who are their intimate partners. That is what we're all working towards. Well, not all of us. Um, there, <laughs> there is an, art, uh, an organization, um, well, there's a number of organizations um, that talks about, you know, uh, poor men being victimized by women. And I guess I keep coming back to this because I'm dumbfounded by some of the vitriol that I've seen on some of these websites. Um, let me see. There's an, uh, um, let me see. There's a site called Man Boobs, B-O-O-B-Z, and uh, that mocks uh, a lot of the male-female relationships and the male-female violence that we see. Um, and I guess, you know, the the idea for them is that uh, is typical of a lot of these male men's rights organizations. And yeah. basically he says that the idea is that all women are fickle opportunistic creatures constantly looking to glom onto some high-status guy and exploit him, and then they'll immediately desert whenever they're with, uh, as soon as they find somebody better, um, men's rights people talk about this as a horrible injustice in the world, and these evil women are looking for guys with status, so if we can figure out how to fake that successfully, we'll get to have sex with them. Well, you can see this is this is literally not worth responding to. I yeah. think it's unfortunately there is a proliferation of of this men's rights stuff out there. And I cannot tell you I mean, I've been doing this work not as long as you have, but for a number of years 
And uh, in the last couple of years, almost every article that I read, almost every um, reference that I see to domestic violence, I get the women, you know, women abuse men too. Yes. Both men and women can be abusers. Both men and women. Well, there's nothing, you know, on the surface per se that's incorrect about that. However, all of that rhetoric gives the impression that it's 50-50. If 50-50 or even, and from my perspective, Heather, it's not the same thing. It is very, very different in intent, in how it's conducted, and why it's done at all. It is not the same thing. I don't think it's just a matter of mostly men do it, so it's the same thing when women do it. It's not the same. Now, again, I adhere to a perspective about oppression, commonly called oppression theory, which talks about marginalized groups as well as dominating groups on every issue. And when a crime is committed by a member of the dominating group against the marginalized group, we use a language that indicates that that kind of action has state and typically church support. But when it's done... Can you say that again, Phyllis? When a crime or an offense is committed by the member of a dominating group against a member of a marginalized group... It has the support of the power and the support of the state. Typically, when I say state, I mean government, but religion plays a very big role, too. Mm -hmm. So on domestic violence, it's the church and the state that backs and allows men's entitlement to control and use a whole range of abusive strategies to control women who are their intimate partners. When a woman does it to a man... It flies in the face of those norms. You're not supposed to do that. So both church and state comes down much harder on women who do this to men than they ever do on men who do this to women. And this is, again, loosely what we call uh, oppression theory. This is how I look at sexism, racism, heterosexism, economic injustice, ableism, and so forth. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've identified, and we started our program with some questions. We've identified who are the perpetrators, basically. And anybody. Anybody. Anybody, that's right. We've touched on why they perpetrate, um, yeah. but maybe we could clarify that a little bit more. Um, they do it because it makes them feel more in control. Well, I would say they do it because they're entitled to do it and because it works. If a man wants to, you know, a man feels an entitlement to decide which church his family should belong to. So he'll use strategies not to discuss and compromise and talk, but he'll require certain things get done and he'll use raising his voice or threatening to make it happen. Uh, or the, money. Sure, a whole range yeah. of strategies. A glib answer often is, why do men abuse? Because they can and because it works. Yeah. You get yeah. away. I've, I feel that way about any really um, controlling and manipulative person, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in an intimate relationship. Um, <laughs> they, they get to. They get to do that. And yes. people who are not uh, thrust into a, 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 a complex relationship with that person, for the most part, will give that person whatever they want just to get the heck away. Exactly. Um, exactly. It works. Yes, it, it does. It works. Yeah. It's and rude, uh, rooted yeah. in societal, invisible. Uh, it's kind of the, invi it's like the wallpaper. The, you know, it's the atmosphere. You're allowed to behave this way. Gloria Steinem wants to find domestic violence in one word. She said, life simply the way it is and it's that doesn't mean it's the way that it should be or that it's morally or spiritually okay it is okay to have a relationship where you don't agree and like you would with uh, anyone you respected you would sit and talk and come to compromises without anybody threatening or forcing 
the other. Mm-hmm. Um, that would imply, though, that there's an equality, a basis of equality in correct. that relationship. That's um, and that doesn't always exist. Um, I think that, you know, as you mentioned, historically and socially, um, that equality has not been there. And I go ahead. And I think that uh, you know I'm really uh, kind of disturbed by the this whole men's rights thing because, for one thing, they tend to be very vitriolic, and for another thing, they seem to be truly, truly outraged uh, about the notion that somebody would have as much power as they. They yeah. they seem to really think women are out to get them. It's it's like they're afraid of women. Um, you know, I mean, I could be afraid of a snake. And I can avoid it, or I can kill every snake I find. Right. Um, and and it, it's like, okay, so there's a, a fear there is what I'm thinking. There's some sort of fear against women. Women are manipulative. Women are, are greedy. Women are this. Women are that. They're sneaky, blah, blah, blah. And so instead of avoiding that because I want sex, I will use the kill every snake I find approach. You know, you, I think you're giving far more consciousness to these behaviors than I think people have. I, again, feel it's kind of embedded in culture. Um, let me make the comparison. Um, I'm raised to be a, a liberal and progressive person and thinking that I'm always doing the right thing and that even when I'm dealing with members of an oppressed group where I'm the dominating group, that I would never act in an oppressive way, and um, if I use racism as an example. But there are many, many times before I knew and understood better that I was, as a white middle-class woman, behaving in a way that was not only perceived to be racist by colleagues of color around me, but of course was. But because I'm part of the dominating group, which is white people, I didn't have to listen when I was told. I said, no, you're wrong. You're just making everything about race. Mm -hmm. Now, not until I understood, and that took a lot of listening to the voices of, learning to respect the voices of people who are marginalized and assuming that they're right and I'm wrong, did I, was I able to go on a path to really understand the that racism wasn't about my behavior, but about a construct in our society that allows white people to behave in ways that are oppressive while denying that we're doing it because we don't have to listen to the marginalized group. This is deep waters, Heather. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. And and it sometimes, these, of course, this is not news. I mean, this this conversation has been held for 40 years if not more, but it still remains threatening to a number yes. of people. without a doubt. Uh, without you know, it, it, you have the backlash. There is backlash to the way of thinking that I've just described for you. There is always going to be backlash, and there certainly is now. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Um, this whole emotional intelligence article that I read was kind of fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, emotional intelligence usually refers to the ability of a person to um, regulate uh, things that uh, uh, apply to them and uh, emotions and and uh, other people, you know, that spills out into other people. And we usually think of, of emotional intelligence as a, a good thing. Yes. However... This uh, ability to, to use emotional intelligence can also be turned against people um, that don't um, basically do what the, the the manipulator wants. Yes, and that I I guess I'm kind of fascinated by this article because I haven't really used heard the uh, use of the the term emotional intelligence when talking about perpetrators. I don't. But think... I can. Yeah. Go ahead. But I can see that. I think that that um, a successful, if you will, um, abuser is a great manipulator. And if you have, you know, if emotional intelligence is tied into your ability to manipulate others, then, um, you know, that seems a logical connection to me. I would say that my experience is that... Um, 
the, the, the actual thought out, this is what I'm going to do, a very conscious decision and a, a plan to manipulate, um, makes it more conscious than the experience that I have interviewing men who have come through our program. Um, I think for the most part it's for them somewhat invisible, what I've done, what my dad did, what I'm allowed to do, what culture says is okay to do, um, with no sensibility that it's really wrong or inappropriate or harmful. And it's interesting to hear, and this is not just men in a quote-unquote batterer program, but when I, and I often get the opportunity to train people and have done so across this country on the very concepts that we're talking about. Um, I certainly have doctors and lawyers and, uh, you know, lay people and professionals who are shocked and who have never heard this way of looking at domestic violence. And um, when informed, many say, my gosh, I'm, I'm part of this. This is not just about others. I have to figure out, I'm, I, I take these kind of liberties with my wife. One man that I was training to be an instructor in our program, Heather, got home one night, the night that he had come to a seminar, which ended, at, uh, our, our seminar that night was from 7 till 9 o'clock. He said he went home, his wife was sleeping, he kind of nudged her, and uh, she said, what, what? She said, I have such an important question to ask you. And she said, what, what? You woke me up. What do you need to ask me? He said, have I ever been abusive to you? And she said, of course, and went back to sleep. <laughs> and this is one of the nicest men you will ever know, and he has never committed an illegal act of abuse. That's not what we, what he, what we were talking about and not what his wife was referencing. He said, did I ever, ever do anything abusive to you? She said, of course. (laughs) (laughs) We've all laughed about the story ever since. (laughs) Um, That, to me, would be a very enlightened um, partner. He He was a man who was in my program studying to be an instructor in a batterer program. And he was learning stuff, the very same stuff we're going to teach to the men who are in the program, and he had never heard this analysis before. And as he heard it, he said, my gosh, I I think I'm implicated in all of this. And he went home and asked his wife, and she said, well, of course you are. This is how men be with women. (laughs) Um, To differing degrees. Um, uh, In differing degrees. Now, I will tell you again, this is a lovely couple. These are people that I socialize with. This is a sweet and wonderful story that they laugh about till this day. Um, And he really had an incredible experience learning stuff that he says he never knew. And it changed his way of relating with his partner. Which, by the way, and here's something I want to say, certainly before our show comes to an end, um, in the program that I work in and in the movement of people that I work closely with, including NOMAS and the New York State Coalition Against Domestic Violence, we have deep belief that every man is competent to treat women respectfully. Every man is capable if he wants to, to figure out what it means to treat women respectfully. We believe that's true about every issue of oppression. And what we want to do is to change the culture of our country, change the culture of our institutions and our systems, so that instead of being based on on inequality and differential power, to value both men and women and other people in and outside of those margins, to value people equally. We're not the same, but we are equally valuable. The same is true about black, white, Latina, Latino, and other cultures, or races as they are so-called. 
everyone is capable of yeah. treating others respectfully. But you but have, you have, to, have to, go you ahead. Have you have to be open to it. You have to be willing to say um, that this is something important and that this Correct. is something that's worth my while. My that's while. Right. That's uh, right. And I, in my experience, not of a lot of, of abusers um, feel that way. A lot of abusers that uh, and um, uh, perpetrators that I have uh, dealt with, not nearly as extensively as you have, Phyllis, but they don't see that they did anything wrong. Um, they think the courts are prejudiced against men. They think that, um, oh, oh, this is just silliness and, and this is just being spiteful on the part of the woman, uh, that they did not do anything wrong. And I used to think that that was just being manipulative and, and ingenuous. But I think now that a lot of these guys don't see that they did anything wrong. Absolutely, which is, you know, the 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 kind of uh, batterer program that I run called the New York Model for Batterer Programs is really a service to the court so that the court can monitor uh, a man and uh, hold him accountable for whatever the court has uh, judged that he has done, but can monitor whether or not the the person is doing exactly what the court wanted to do in relation to coming to a program. But the men who do come to this particular program are provided with the same information that you and I are talking about. And many of the men in the program go, my gosh, just like the man that I told you about, I never saw it this way. That's really interesting. Now, whether or not people who see it will suddenly decide that they want to shift their own behavior and equalize power and listen to the voices of women, that remains to be seen. That's one of the one of the basic foundations of an equal relationship is to recognize if you're part of the marginalized group or part of the dominating group. And if you're part of the dominating group, you need to be very careful not to redefine the experience of the woman that you're talking to. So if a woman says, oh, I, I, I remember that day. I really didn't have a good time. And a man will say, well, yes, you did. You just you really did enjoy it. And that's a common redefining of her experience. So if she says, you're hurting me or you're making me feel bad, a response like, no, I'm not, you're just too sensitive, no longer holds water. No. An argument can be made for perpetrator uh, treatment programs that what it's doing is giving a new vocabulary and a new set of tools for manipulating women and dominating women. Have you heard that argument? And if so, what's your comment? Well, I've certainly heard the argument, and in some ways I can simply say it's silly. No man has needed a batterer program to learn how to abuse women who are their partners. There's a whole world out there that gives them support and entitlement and a court system that still, for the most part, lets men committing uh, lesser infractions of domestic violence and even serious ones get away with it. And you've spoken to Barry Goldstein, handing children over to perpetrators and abusers, taking custody away from women. No, no man needs a batterer program. And by the way, the numbers of men in batterer programs in comparison to the numbers of men are being abusive, if we ever in batterer programs see one-tenth of one percent of men who are being abusive, you can see that it's, there's no big problem of men in batterer programs learning how to perpetrate. Again, I will say it's silly. Okay. Um, when, um, gosh, I guess I'm, I... Um, can I, of course, defer to your experience, but in my experience, it's like, really? You really get guys who who uh, just go, yeah, you know, I see the light now, and, and I was abusive, and I was this, and I was that. I mean, does that really happen? Um, not very often, but that, but I would say there are many men who learn the material that I'm talking to you about and that you're talking to me about, Heather. They learn it so well they themselves could teach it. 
My point is that whether you have this information or not doesn't say anything about whether or not you're going to alter your relationship with your intimate partner. Mm -hmm. That remains solely and completely up to him. That's what he's accountable for himself. And in a culture that really push it, force it, or or cheer it, or applaud it, or appreciate it yet, um, there's a big question mark. The numbers of men who are going to be not abusive anymore because they've been in batterer programs by data, by science, and by my experience is negligible. You're not going to end domestic violence with batterer programs. You're going to end domestic violence by shifting the culture of entitlement that allows men to do it and get away with it. And that's not something that we can have done by Tuesday, is it? I don't think so, but if we could, I would do it this instant. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Phyllis, we've talked about who they are. We've talked about why they do it, and, again, basically because they can and it works for them. So what do we do about it? We've talked a little bit about treatment programs. You've just admitted that treatment programs are not going to solve the problem. Um, not, even, is there... not even a little bit. It has nothing to do with treatment programs. Massive prevention efforts, figuring out how every community can work cross venues, cross professions, so that you have leadership from local domestic violence programs which have this analysis working together with health and human services, with the director of social services, with hospitals, with superintendents of schools, looking at your legislators, seeing how government is operating around issues that impact men's entitlements and women's safety. There are extraordinary efforts being led by um, certainly our administration with the Violence Against Women Act, with national organizations like the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, state coalitions against domestic violence, all have extraordinary ideas about shifting the culture of entitlement. And um, it's really working across all of these systems that really will be required for us to bring an end to men's violence against women in intimate relationships. There's no easy answer, as you can hear. So if we're looking at a long haul to change these attitudes and expectations, um, what's our next generation doing? Does our next generation see this as as a a task that they need to work on? Um, Because i got to tell you, a lot of young women that I know don't really see uh, these kinds of issues as anything that they really need to spend time on. Has your experience been different with that? It's, uh, you know, I, I would say I know exactly what you're speaking of because I have unfortunately heard women who say, you know, that's a yesterday's issue, and sadly um, it won't be yesterday's issues when they themselves are surviving uh, rape or sexual assault or, dom- or dating abuse or domestic violence. I told you before the show that I had spoken yesterday to high school students, and before I left speaking to them, I asked them if they would speak to me about what make them want to be activists against dating abuse and sexual assault. And every one of the 25 students, both boys and girls and youngsters who called themselves queer and didn't want to identify either way, were very clear that this is an ongoing issue in their high schools, that the, the culture of their schools need to change, and I, ha- I walked away with great excitement and hope about our future generations. That's good to know. Good to know. Because quite o- frequently I get, you know, something completely different from young people, and it's a little frustrating, yeah, um, so- you know, that, that there isn't a more immediate need uh, in their view uh, for, you know, fixing some of these social ills. And the only conclusion that I have had is that they're, they're young and they haven't yet experienced uh, a huge array of, uh, you know, social situations and conditions and things that will hit them later in life. 
in all probability. Uh, and that's when they will probably develop an interest in doing something about it. Um, Phyllis, I just love talking with you. I wish you could be here every week. Um, oh, we one of the... so... thank you. Well, that, that's a lovely compliment, Heather. I really enjoy talking <laughs> with you as well. Yes, and uh, hopefully, you know, we've shared a lot of information. We've talked a lot, uh, uh, and if you are one of those men's rights groups movement people and you want to take us to task, you can do that. And uh, we're here every week, 11 a.m. on Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And uh, we also uh, have our previous shows available in archive. If you go to the website, blogtalkradio.com slash Three Women, Three Ways, and you can go see or hear all of our previous archive shows. And Phyllis was with us a couple months ago, was it, Phyllis? I think. Um, and it was just as, as stimulating a conversation then as it is now. So where's our hope, Phyllis? What, where's what, our what, hope? Can you, well, what can you tell us to make us feel like in the next 50 years things are going to be different for our children and grandchildren? Well, I'm an eternal optimist, and I work on a whole range of issues of oppression, and the one that seems to be moving most quickly right now is the reality that lesbian and gay humans are normal, wonderful human beings who deserve and should have by law, by church and state, total valuing and acceptance and full rights and responsibilities um, just like heterosexual people. And I think that when you look at what, how quickly change is happening, and I put that a lot in the hands of young people who have said, why is this an issue? What difference does it make? Um, there's the hope. I believe this can happen across the board. But then we see that proliferation of um, yes, web pages right. that are filled with vitriol and uh, you know, um, excuse making, and um, you know, it, it, and it 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 does make me wonder. Okay, two steps forward, two steps backwards. I mean, you know, <laughs> you're the I optimist tonight. Saying, but I believe we will get there. Um, I, I I don't feel depressed by all of this. I feel there's always work to be done, and I also feel impressed that there are young people coming behind us whose work will stand on our shoulders like our work stands on the shoulders of feminist activists and anti-racist activists and LGBTQ activists who came before us. And I think our numbers are swelling. I hope you are right. I hope you are right, because I would really like a world where I don't have to worry about my daughter and uh, my son, too, um, experiencing or being involved in um, this kind of behavior against other human beings um, or being the victim of it. You know, know, Phyllis, I always uh, try to end our show with a quote, and it was kind of hard to find a quote today, but... Um, we started the program talking about um, how when news was reported about domestic violence or sexual assault, we always get the, oh, but he's such a good guy, and oh, he's such a good guy. And Judith Herman made a quote that I think applies to that and kind of takes us full circle. She said, it's very tempting to take the side of the perpetrator. All the perpetrator asks is that the bystander do nothing. He appeals to the universal desire to see, hear, and speak no evil. The victim, on the contrary, asks the bystander to share the burden of the pain. That's right. And uh, I think that's rather, rather stunning. That's Do you have beautiful. any final words to leave us with? Um, I have faith and confidence that men and women working together can create a, a, a world and a country where women and men are valued equally and we each can conduct full and rich lives side by side. Thank you so much, Phyllis, for joining us. Next week, uh, we are going to be talking about a woman in Wisconsin, young woman who was pregnant, who happened to mention during a prenatal visit to her doctor that she used to do drugs.
And a couple days later, there are police officers at her door. They took her to prison, or to jail anyway, um, and appointed an attorney for her fetus. And um, that just raises all sorts of questions for me, uh, especially since her blood work showed no, um, no drugs in her system. Um, it raises questions about the authority of the state. It raises questions about, um, you know, uh, the right of the unborn versus the, uh, the, the mother. It just raises all sorts of questions. So please join us next week. It's going to be a good conversation. This is Three Women, Three Ways. Thank you for joining us.